you're new visiting, thrilled that you're here. Uh, we just gather. This is, this is very simply a worship service. We get to worship Jesus, who we believe is uh, God. It did come to save us from sin and reconcile us back to God. So uh, we're thankful that we get to worship uh, God in the person and face of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing. So songs are primarily about him and what he's done. We also uh, give generously because God's given us generously in his son, Jesus Christ. We give on the silver boxes on the back wall. We also uh, take the supper every week just to remember and rejoice in this Jesus whose body was broken and blood was shed uh, for our sin. And we also worship Jesus by sitting under uh, the word of God, under preaching uh, so that God might uh, more fully and uh, particularly show us how we see the face of Jesus Christ in all of his uh, revelation. So, um, just wanted to uh, also say by way of um, uh, just announcement, um, Pastor Wilson finally was able to purchase his truck. You guys know that we, uh, yeah, praise the Lord, we gave about 30-some thousand dollars to, uh, to get him that truck. So he got the truck. Now the prayer is that it would get to Haiti because he found the best purchase in Florida. It's going, I think, down there right now. Uh, as we speak, and uh, just for prayers that God would use that for his glory and for the mission that God has called uh, Pastor Wilson in. But we'll, we'll have a few pictures up probably next week so you guys can uh, see what you guys were able to um, bless him with. So uh, we're thankful in that way. Um, Bergen kids, if you guys are in here, you guys can head out to the back. I want to pray, ask God to move and work. We are in um, Habakkuk. Habakkuk has been a, a great study, a weighty study, full study, and there's much that God wants to say this morning, so I don't want to waste any time. So let's, uh, let's have a minute with him. I, I always say that um, nothing can happen in this place if the Holy Spirit does not move and does not act. The scriptures are clear that we need uh, something outside of ourselves to give us illumination, to give us understanding, to give us clarity, and to give us the thoughts and mind of God. Um, we cannot possibly, as finite humanity, understand God without his help. He's revealed himself through creation, through Jesus, through his word, through our conscience, but ask him this morning to reveal himself in the ways that he needs to be revealed to you. Ask him to reveal attributes of himself that he needs to reveal to you. Maybe there are things that you believe you need to know about God, but he knows exactly what you need to know about himself. God, every Sunday we're at your feet begging you to speak begging you to be clear, begging you to help us to understand. Uh, Father, we know that, that answers, um, Father, are found most fully in knowing you and understanding you. Uh, so God, help that, help that to be true this morning. Encourage those who are heavy laden, who walk in here with deep, weighty burdens, cares, concerns, anxieties, fears. Father, would you continue to put us at ease because of who you are, not because of who we are or how we think. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. I always say, please grab one. Keep that. Um, that's our gift to you. We're in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a, is a prophetic book. It's a book in the prophets. So if you go to the end of your Old Testament and then turn back just a couple books, you're going to uh, find it there. And um, I, I always say that, that prophets and, and really the Word of God itself is to speak to us. But prophets were uh, men of God who basically God would raise up in particular seasons and times and he would say, um, go and speak to a particular person or a particular people, um, particular things about what I want 
want to say to them. Um, and throughout Ultimate, Old Testament history, it was predominantly, hey, Israel, you guys are supposed to be my nation. You're supposed to be my people who are a uh, bright light to surrounding nations so that everybody sees you. They might not see you, but ultimately see me and say, wow, your God's the true God. Your God's the real God. Your God is an awesome God. And so um, that, that was the hope. But what happened was through seasons, if you know your Old Testament history, uh, there are many ups and downs in the life of Israel. When they were good kings, they felt like things were good. When they were bad kings, they felt like things were bad. And um, ultimately, it culminates in these addings and removings of kings, these prophets coming, saying, hey, return to God. You're rebelling. You're wandering from his good ways and how he's designed you to live and designed you to work. And so um, they go through all these different seasons. And then there's a great season with this King Josiah who comes in, and there's just revival. The people return to God. He finds a scroll in the temple of Solomon and begins to read the law and starts weeping. Remember, we, he was weeping because the law was not primarily to show you how awesome you were. It was to show you how terrible you were, that you need someone who can fulfill it for you. And so he realizes, wow, I need, we need God. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. And so um, he ultimately gets the people to turn back to God. And then once he dies, there is just plummet among the people of Israel. And there is social chaos, political chaos, moral chaos. Um, everything around them just seems to be falling apart. And so um, here Habakkuk comes in, and he's basically crying out to God. We saw the first week how he basically says, God, where are you? Uh, there's, there's corruption. There's political strife. There's, there's moral waywardness, and, and it seems like you're not involving yourself. It seems like you don't care. You're just, you seem to idly sit by. How in the world could you just overlook us as your people? I thought salvation was supposed to come out of our nation. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen, and God answers him. We saw last week, and he, it seems like God just compounds a problem to a problem. He says, oh, no, I'm not idle. I do hear you, and if I told you everything I was going to do, you wouldn't even understand it, and we see he shows how I'm raising up these Babylonians, these perverse, morally corrupt, wicked nation that's going to come in and basically steamroll you guys as judgment. <laughs> not, not the answer that Habakkuk was looking for, yet we saw, and we are continuing to learn, that, that God is always doing something, that his ways are always ultimately good, and that we need to not seek to change God, tweak God, fix God, but understand God. Uh, and that is the way to life. That is a place where our feet can land and stay fixed. And so um, here Habakkuk's going to respond again. So what's amazing about this book is you'll see um, Habakkuk is really this interaction between a prophet and God. We don't get that in any other book of the scripture. And yet here we see this amazing dialogue of this prophet talking with God. And uh, this morning he gives us something that is super encouraging and continues that vein of thought. Here's what uh, Habakkuk says in response to what God just said about these Babylonians coming in and looking to destroy their nation. He says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So, so you see some repetition in Habakkuk, like he's, he's still kind of like, hold on, you didn't answer my problem, right? And I talked about last week how uh, sometimes it's funny when we ask things of God and we pray to God, how he doesn't always give us um, answers, he gives us a response. And we're like, no, no, I want a more detailed answer. He's like, well, I gave you an answer, and it's just not the response you wanted, but this is how I'm going to fulfill that thing. And here, so he kind of reiterates some of the this same language here, but his first prayer was, God, tell me what you're doing. You seem like you're idle. God comes and says, I'm not idle. I'm actually actively involved. And if I told you what, you, what I was going to do, you wouldn't understand, so here's what I'm doing. I don't understand. And now he comes back and says, okay, well, I understand these things about you, but they're not adding up to what I see observationally. 
right? He, he's, he's struggling with these truths about God, the character and nature of God, and what he's seeing on the landscape. Anyone there? Right? God, you say you're holy. Why do you let wickedness just continue? God, you say you can't see evil or look at evil or you're going to judge those who are wicked. How come it seems like you haven't showed up? So many people say, well, if God's really a just God, if he's really going to enact justice, then how come he hasn't showed up yet and done it? Right? There must not be a God. Right? How many of us have been there and felt these things? I mean, these are, he's, just, he's simply being human. Uh, he's simply being real. He's laying his heart before the Lord. And so here he's asking all of these things, and he's saying, man, I know who you are. I know you're holy. I know you're sovereign. I know you're a judge. I know you have pure eyes than to see what's happening. And I know we're rebelling, but then look at his self-righteousness. But, man, they're so much more wicked. Like, how are you letting them get away and them do this? I'm having trouble reconciling my experience with what I know to be your character. Very human. Verse 14, look what he continues to say. You make mankind like fish of the sea. You ever told God that? Man, we feel like fish down here. And look, then he explains it like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Habakkuk's going, man, we feel like, you guys ever gone fishing before where you fish and you look for fish and they're just these little minnows. And then you, you pull them up and you eventually put it in your boat. And then you eventually, if it's still alive, you beat it with a club and then you fry it on the fire. He's going, that's how we feel, right? We're just in this big net all headed for just death. Like this just stinks. And what he's also doing, though, is he's alluding to these Babylonians and what they're going to do and how they worship themselves and their might and their God. But he's just, he's, just, he's just bearing with the Lord. He's bringing his frustrations to God, not running from God in that. He says in verse 16, Therefore, and now he's talking about Babylon, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So, so, so here's what's going on. Babylon is this, you know, national bully, right? And, and the reason that they're, that they're seen this way, as Habakkuk is, is explaining here, is um, they just were a, a nation that just imposed their will on surrounding communities of nations. Um, and as they did that, as they did all this, they worshipped their own success, their murders, their enslavement brought them joy. Their God is their dragnet, um, what, what he's helping us understand here is the reason is Babylon became enormously wealthy. Um, it became a city that was superior to every other city under, under King Nebuchadnezzar II. He built that thing up. They were so powerful, so mighty. The splendor during its time oversaw and surpassed every other city in the ancient world. And what he's saying here is, as he's looking at this, is... Man, these people who have, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, who are worshiping themselves, not the creator, he says, you're using what is unrighteous to punish what is unrighteous. And the only thing that's going to do is make the unrighteous boast in their might evermore. Like, like why are you using unrighteous people to now condemn the rebelling and bring judgment on our unrighteousness? You're only going to increase unrighteousness. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. That doesn't seem to add up to me. Because these people boast in their might. Their dragnet is their God. Their wealth is their God. Their luxury is their God. The ways that they inflict superiority upon others is what they gloat in and boast in. 
they fundamentally have committed Romans 1, which is the cosmic sin of the universe, right? We take what was created and we worship that over what is the creator. And that's why we will consistently say, if you have frustration and anger and discontentment in your life, it's likely because you're constantly looking to gain from what is made and what has been created when it cannot give you what only the creator can give you. So we're not, we're not made as people, as humanity, to find our satisfaction, to find our contentment, to find our joy, to find our everlasting fulfillment in what is made, but in the one who made it. Right? That's why, that's why Romans 1 is so important. That's why the Bible is so important that it ultimately always points you to the one who made all things. This, this book is a book not about you and I primarily, not just a rule book for how to live nice and be moral and have some cute new techniques as to how to overcome certain things. Man, this book fundamentally reveals to us who God is, how he discloses himself, and as you get swept up in that, it transforms you from one degree to the next. 2 Corinthians 4 will tell you. And so he, he's saying, man, these people have missed it much like we have missed it. So the fundamental sin is the same. Israel is worshiping what's been made. They've been worshiping other gods. They've been making uh, golden idols. And in the same way as these apparently more wickedly perverse people, though they're just worshiping something different. But the whole root is they're not worshiping the one true triune God. They're worshiping themselves. They're worshiping what they can do. Habakkuk is being tested now, what is Habakkuk showing us here? Um, one thing I see that I love is he's a realist. He's a realist. He, here's the problem with us Westerners, right? No, no one ever wants to admit this stuff. We have been programmed and conditioned to think that pain and suffering is abnormal and good times are normal. We've been conditioned to believe that, right? So, so man, when, when things are going good, that's normal. That's how it should be, right? Things should be a life of ease. I start following Jesus and life gets easier. Life gets more consistent and there's rhythm. And yes, yes, life is joy to the full, but it's not happiness. It's not this indicative thing of circumstance, Right, right. You're, you're set on something outside of you. You're something set outside of what happens in this life. In fact, if you read this book, the Bible, if you open it up and read it, it actually talks about how struggle, pain, suffering is actually going to be the normal flow and routine of life. So I don't know where we get these crazy doctrines that Jesus enters in, that God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. Life of ease is all that's before you. No, that's only in Western America. You go travel to other parts of the world, and man, you know what's normal? Pain, suffering, evil, and delighting in the one who's over all that. In the Christian parts, in the secret churches, that's what you'll see. You won't see life of ease as normal. You'll see Jesus in John 16 saying, yeah, in this world you're going to have a lot of tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm with you. This is who I am. This is my character and nature. And, and Habakkuk, I love it, is just showing uh, that he's a realist. See, see, most of us, man, we drive by and never want to pump the brakes. We want to either have imagination or isolation. Either I want to hide from it, doesn't happen, doesn't exist, don't ever show me the news, or imagine, or imagine right? Um, no, life isn't really that bad. Really isn't that much evil in the world. Really isn't that much wickedness. Life isn't really as bad as I think it. If you just watch from Genesis 3 on through the whole redemptive history in the Bible and just history as a people, has anything gotten better? Especially in seasons in the 18th century, 19th century, when they thought things were getting better, then a worst wave would come in. So I think we need to be careful how we even understand suffering, evil, and pain. 
the goal is not to be free of it. The goal is to, to lean into one and know one who's over that and who can sustain us in that. And that's why, man, this Bible is filled with books like Habakkuk, Job, Jeremiah, and almost every gospel and New Testament letter so you're prepared to know how to face it. It's not so that when storms come, you go, God, you've changed. God, you're doing something different. Why? No, it's so you can now walk into that. So you're actually prepared to live a human life tethered to Jesus. So Habakkuk's being tested much like we are, right? To the core concerning everything he believed about God. And look at what Habakkuk does, though. Through his frustrations and confusion, he has an epicenter. He has a lightning rod that grounds the storms of life around him. It grounds him out so it doesn't swarm him. Um, He starts appealing to, he rightly articulates who God is. That's what he's remembering. That's what he's recalling. That's what he's saying. Um, See, if all we have in this life is our feelings, our perspectives, our experiences, we're in big trouble, right? I need to get, God, your perspective. I need to get to know who you are. I need to get to know how you see these things, how you operate in your work, and so that will help me. Because here's what happens for most of us. Um, Tell me this isn't true. Um, Circumstances shift in your life, right? Just day is normal, work is normal, life is normal. The second something shifts, the character of God shifts, right? I mean, man, well, my, my good days, man, last week I was down at Long Beach Island. It was sunny out. God is good. God is amazing. God is gracious. God is merciful. Traffic on the highway. Heard about some murderer who just shot up some school. God is evil. Where is he? Where's justice? Right? We're just so fickle. We're so silly, right? And the second a circumstances alters or changes, then the character of God somehow alters or changes. So uh, if we say, man, God, I feel lonely. You must have abandoned me. God, I'm having a bad day. You must hate me. God, I'm feeling really good because you must be near to me. No, God says I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've never changed. No, you're changing. Your understandings of me are changing. Your feelings and emotions are changing, but I have not changed at all. This is what A.W. Tozer said. Um, wrote a great book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Um, that's why I always say, I always act, tell you to read books that talk about who God is. Um, not Your Best Life Now or Unlocking the Happiness Code. I don't know if that's a book. I made it up. But, but just, it's probably out there. But just, like, like, just try to find books that talk about who God is, what his nature's like, what his character's like, how, how he feels. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of its God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he is given at any time or may say or do, but what in his deep heart conceives God to be like. That is the most portentous fact about men and women. Men and women. So many times when we start feeling, we need to start thinking rightly about who God is. This is why in turmoil, tribulation, suffering, you got to move towards not God must have changed, but man, I got to dig my heels into who he is. What is he doing here? God help me. Where, where are you? What are you like? And then don't use your perspective or circumstance to interpret who God is. Use God to help you interpret your circumstance. Okay? That's, how, that's where we need to start. 
Um, this is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Probably text that many of us grew up if we were in Awana or like some, you know, church our whole life, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I mean, that's one everyone knows, right? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. Cool, I got my sticker, got my badge. Listen, the well in that text. I mean, what is it saying? Faith precedes understanding. Man, if we were to really build our lives up on text that we learned when we were five, we'd be a lot more stable in storms, right? So, so trust not. He says right out of the gate, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean in your own understanding. And God's going to direct paths. What profound wisdom from a Proverbs text that we have known for so long. We do not need self-help, friends. We need God's help. We desperately need to know more and more of the character and nature of God, less of how we feel. So look, this is what he does. I just want to run through the list real quick. He gives us these different truths about God. He says, you're everlasting, right out of the gate in verse 12. He pleads and appeals to God. This is what I know you to be. You are everlasting, right? He is outside of time. He created time. He intervenes in time. He stands outside of all things. Man, he rules over all things. He is everlasting. He has dimensions that our minds cannot fit in a box, cannot conjure up, cannot understand. God is God. No one is like God. No one comes alongside God. He is everlasting. And so what he sees and what he knows, we can trust because he has the heart of a father towards his children. He's everlasting, he says. My view is very limited. His view is unlimited. I know that's hard to remember and think of when we're in the darkness, but man, I mean, think about how limited our view is. Man, you don't know what later today's going to bring. You don't know what's going to happen two hours from now. He does. Absolutely. He knows every millisecond of every minute, of every hour, every day, of every week. He knows exactly what's going to come and what life will bring. He's not surprised by anything. He's seen every episode of your life. Did you know that? He's not like us when you Netflix binge. I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, no. He, yep, already saw this. Already planned this. Already established this. He's sovereign, verse 12. He uses the word Lord, highest authority. King, ruler, controller. There's no one like God, comparable to God, equal to God, like God. When he wills, decrees, and determines things will happen, they absolutely will because he is totally sovereign. And that's actually great news for us. It means no matter what might be crumbling around us, no matter how fierce storms might feel, we know a God that's in control of every bit of those. I've always said nothing more terrifying than mindless, seemingly random acts is a God who has no control over that. Listen, I'd much rather live under a God who is sovereign in authority over those things than has no control going, man, I, I don't know, it's just chaos, and I just kind of let it spin. But God has wills and purposes beyond my my knowledge, and says, I am good in those things, and I'm bringing these all to my ultimate purpose and will, Ephesians 1.11. Every bit of what I do is to fill my perfect, pleasing plan. You need to know this. You need to trust this. Kingdoms and kingdoms, princes and pleasures come and go, go but God rules over them all. You have a sovereign God. We do not have a puny God. We do not have a God who's surprised by suffering or does not know how to act or does not know how to manage the storms of our life. We have a God who is fully in control and in charge of those. Just because something seems out of your hand doesn't mean it's ever out of his. And that's who we need to trust. This is why he says you have ordained. This is why he says this. 
um, he not only knows the future, God rules the future. It just says it. God, you ordained this. Like, like you're the ruler of this. You're the author of this. You're, you're the one who is allowing these things. The scripture's really in eff- essence, right? Isn't the scripture in essence just, just a prophetic book that just details in, in, in inextricable detail historic history and, and future history and it all comes to pass, it all has passed, it will come to pass. Why? Because God knows it all and this is ultimately his history. Like all of history is God's history. And this we find great comfort in, that yes, we make decisions. Yes, we plan. Yes, we do things. Yes, we act according to his will. Yes, we pray. Yes, we plead. Yes, we move. But we're all doing it. Um, I heard one person say at some point this great illustration of, of it being on a ship, right? That, that Jesus is this kind of leader. He's this master. He's this captain. And we can rebel. There can be mutiny. We can just reject what he says. But ultimately, right, that God is going to get us safely to the dock of eternal shores. And that's a promise that we can rest in. Ultimately, he is the one who is over all those things, going in his direction, and he will surely get us safely there. Surely. And nothing will stop him from doing that. Nothing. Nothing. Um, one thing that's so encur- been so encouraging to me is that even our wrong decisions can never thwart the plans of God for us. It's so encouraging. <laughs> Maybe it's a detour, but it ain't going to stop where he's getting us. The most liberating encouragement and edification I got when we were thinking about moving from Virginia to plant this church, I met with one of my good friends, and he said, Mike, if you move, just you and your wife, and God does seemingly nothing, and you end up homeless with no support raised, with no church, you made the right decision. And if you go and God blesses and God moves and God acts and God builds something and you're not homeless and your support gets raised, it was the right decision. Like, like your confidence isn't in what effects will be. It's not in what the circumstance will be ultimately. It's that you're just following the God you can trust. It's just that he's the one going before you. He's the one who's planned your steps. That's where our confidence has to be. Because if we make decisions based on fear, we will be silly people. Don't ever make a decision based on fear. Based on what God is saying and how God is leading, what you know about God to be true, so you can trust the God who's leading you, not just what might happen in the end. He says he's creator, verse 14. He says you make mankind, right? We all come from God. We all belong to God. We'll ultimately all die and go back to God and give account to God. That's sobering. He knows reality here. He knows good theology. God, I know that you made all mankind, so how are you letting this go in your world that you made? I know what's true about you, so help me understand my experience. I know what you are like. I know life only makes sense with you and for you. So help me understand this. That's where you find your peace. He says he's holy, verse 12 to 13. He says you have purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This is huge, right? God is good. God is always good. God is only good. God is not evil. God is holy. God is perfect. He's not impure. He's pure. He's not unholy. He's holy. So if you see something, it's not a projection of God. It's a rejection of God. 
right? It's not, oh, God must be evil because he's allowing this or not acting in this. No, it's a rejection of God. Evil in itself is the absence of all that is holy, all that is good. And so, God, I know you're holy. I know you're good. I know you're perfect. Help me understand why you're allowing this wickedness. I know your eyes are, are not able to, to look upon evil and sin, so help me understand how this could be good. We saw last week how God worked out the the advancement of the gospel through such wickedness, how even through the the wickest evil ever done to the most perfect man who ever lived Jesus, he worked to the ultimate good, the salvation of nations and tribes. So he's showing us these amazing, amazing things that God is holy. He's personal, verse 12, amazing. I mean, that he's sovereign, that he's he's holy, that he, he seems unattainable, yet he's personal. He says, my God. He's not just ultimate. He's intimate. That's amazing. Isn't that one of the most staggering things for you in the Christian faith? That when you start to really understand who the God of the Bible is, you're going, hold on a second. He wants relationship. Like he, he brings Jesus to reconcile me on the little blue dot in the galaxies. Like he cares to redeem and make new Mike Reed. What? (laughs) He's my God, he says. He knows God's not just a force, he's his father. He's not just an existence, he's somebody who is actively involved in every fabric and detail of his life. It's amazing. So he's not just tremendously everlasting, holy, eternal, sovereign, in charge. He knows every hair on your head, he knows every fear you will think, he knows every worry of every day you will have. That is what God is like. He also says he's judge, verse 12. Now, this all likely goes together. I mean, God, if you're sovereign, God, if you're holy, God, if you're, if you're good, if you're not evil, then you must be a judge, right? I mean, how many of us get frustrated when there's no justice? All of us, <laughs> I would think. Right? We love justice, and we said last week, unless it's attributed to the God of the universe. We love justice when it's outside of him, and God says he has appointed a day where we will, he will judge the world. John 5 says that the Father has entrusted this to the Son, and that he has every right to tell us when we are wrong, and when we are right, and what is off and what is on, and what is in alignment with his will and what is not in alignment with his will. He has every right to do that. Because he is God. He is the creator. We are the created. And so here we see that he finds great confidence and encouragement in knowing still, though, I know that you are a judge. I know no one's getting away with anything. I know you're going to give an account of everything, God. So help me to see eternally. Help me to trust that you're good. This, now, now this, this, that he's just a judge. I mean, even though it's in the Bible everywhere, this isn't said anymore. Why? Because we're just afraid of people not giving, of people complaining, of people leaving. When really, if he's sovereign and he's holy and he's not evil, this is the most loving thing you could possibly say. This is the most encouraging thing you could, most, you could possibly say is, man, that, that God is holy and that God is a judge and that, hey, I, it's just my judge to tell you the truth. It's your job to make a decision. It's God's job to judge. But man, we say these things, we gather because I deeply love you, deeply care about you, deeply care about you not wandering, not being misinformed, not being misled. There are so many doctrines and teachings, Ephesians 4 will say, want to tickle your ears and lead you away from the faith to make you comfortable, to make you feel better in your seat, and not wrestle you to a place of actual eternal glory and joy when you feel safe in the temporary. 
And he's going, man, I know that you're a judge. I know you're not going to let this get away with. I know that no one's going to get away with anything ultimately. But God, it's hard to see that. It's hard to realize that. I mean, isn't that a beautiful way to pray? Still saying tethered to the God of the universe. Because some will say, well, where is God? Because he has not judged. And there seems to be wickedness everywhere, so God must not exist. Listen, God is very patient. He's very patient. He longs that men and women turn to repentance and faith in him. But his patience will wear out. It will wear out. And just him allowing wickedness to continue is mercy. Um, I think I've shared this before, maybe once. Uh, when 2020 years ago ran a documentary, it was called The Blasphemy Project. And, and there were people that were just tired with religion and so they said, hey man, let, let's just, let's show our freedom by mocking the creator. And so they took all these YouTube videos and they would say these horrific things about the God of the universe, about the Christian God of the scriptures. And they would say, I just blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I'm not afraid. So they'd say, uh, God, you're a child molester. I just blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I'm not afraid. Um, and, okay, so they, they put these YouTubes together Thousands of people watch them and follow them to where they do a documentary on television about it. After making these videos, you think those people had some good meals? You think, you think they enjoyed some crab cake? Yeah. You think they enjoyed good friendships? Absolutely. You think they might have even enjoyed some Western success and 401k? And Absolutely. Is that not crazy mercy? That, that God, you're a child molester, and God says, I'll withhold. I'll let you trod my planet. I'll let you make these videos. I'll let you enjoy the food that I've made. I'll let you enjoy relationships I've created. I'll even let you maybe get involved in unhindered fornicating just for the, the joy of yourself. Just go enjoy it. Like, is that not mercy? Is that not profound mercy? That God, in spite of that, withholds and is patient? And we know that one day, right, that, that he has shown a full mercy, right? Because if you ever want to, like, know how serious is sin and rebellion against this God who's holy, everlasting, sovereign, like, just look at his response. He only has two, hell and the killing of Jesus. Both are deadly serious. And so we see that he must be a good judge and must be just. And that's actually really, really, really good news to us because he will make every wrong right. And he does offer us to turn and repent and relent from what we're doing in rebellion towards his name and make us one of his and give us his Holy Spirit and give us an eternal kingdom and sit under a God and enjoy being and having a God who is our Father, who is good, who is everlasting and sovereign and holy and for his children, knowing we can trust him. And this is why I love the way he ends this prayer. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, So I'll take my stand now at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, I will, and what he will answer or I will answer concerning my complaint. I love this. Habakkuk prays, and you know what he does? He stops talking and he just starts listening. You get up in a watch post, like Ezekiel. It's a place you could, militaristic, uh, you could see it from a different perspective. You could get a different picture. It's almost this idea of Habakkuk going, okay, I've laid my request to the Lord. I've made my plea, and now I'm going to get up and get a different perspective, God. Can you give me your perspective now? 
I want to wait to hear from you now. I want you to, you to answer me, and I want you to help me understand what you're doing now. I need someone else's perspective. I need not my perspective. I need your perspective. And he says, I will wait on the Lord. I will wait to hear what he says. I mean, how many of us need to go to a different place with a different perspective that's God's to help us understand our situation? Amen? We don't need more of our own intellect. We don't need more of what we think. We need what God thinks. We need to know what God is doing. The answer to so many of our problems and strife is not answers from God. It's we desperately need the presence of God. We need more of his presence. We need to understand him. We need to know him. We need to be fixated on these things. No one else can resolve our questions, answers, complaints, confusions. God can. So when storms roll in, we need to know the God of the truth, not hear from people who speculate truth. And here's why. Um, Because if you don't hear from the God of truth, um, the the lies and the voices of hurry, fury, worry will just out-cloud, out-do, out-speak, out-yell the God of truth. So much of our pain and strife and problems comes from our view of God. You know, I was thinking about this um, on Thursday afternoon. (laughs) I was thinking about all the places in the Old Testament where People have these horrific seasons, and God's answer is not, hey, here's your answer. It's, hey, look at me. Amazing, right? Because here's the thing. We'll all get together, right, especially in theological camps and churches, and we'll, we'll talk about God, try to understand God, and, and even rebuke God and change God and edit God, forgetting that all the while, if you actually saw God, you'd say nothing. Right? We'd all just be in awe. We would all just be struck. None of us would have a word to say. It reminded me of Isaiah chapter 6, where he's, he's a prophet, right, given to speak to the people. And here's what he says. He says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was seated on a throne, high and exalted, train of a robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. Two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and temple was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response. Woe to me, man. I've said some things that were bad. I'm going, man, okay, this is a prophet. Pretty good guy, right? He sees God, and the first thing he thinks about and is revealed is, man, I, man well, I, I've said some things. That were, I'm going, man, you got to look at my rap sheet, right? There's a prophet. I mean, I can't believe that just getting a glimpse of God revealed more about his, his own self than his accusations of who God might be. And then he says here, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So uh, in the year King Uzziah dies, Isaiah gets his vision, and, and listen, we could spend 18 weeks just exegeting this section of Isaiah 6. Just all the different, just the power you see, the authority you see, the glory you see. I mean, he's seeing this amazing, amazing picture that, that even just the imagery itself doesn't seem like it can fit in your box because the robe fills the temple. I mean, we've seen little kings and little scepters, but you haven't seen this king with a massive scepter the size of galaxies with a robe that fills the temple to where the people are screaming out his character and nature so loudly that thresholds are shaking. (laughs) I mean, just get this picture. Now, Now, here is what, to me, is so profound. It's when God gives him the vision. It's when King Uzziah died. You know anything about Israel? Good kings, things are awesome. Bad kings, things are bad. 
Isaiah was a good, Uzziah was a good king. 52 years about. Good king. People loved King Uzziah. And God doesn't come down because people were panicked. What are we going to do? We lost King Uzziah. How are we going to continue on? And God does not come to Isaiah and go, hold on, let me counsel your problems and issues. He goes, let me just show you myself. Let me show you something so much bigger than your problems. Let me show you what I'm like. Let me just reveal to you a sliver of my glory. Isn't that fascinating? That that's how God responds in a, in a time of panic. And not that he doesn't respond in other ways, but profound how he responds here. Come up here, let me show you something. This is why when we open our Bibles, um, we need to be going, God, what do you tell me about you? Like, this is just good Bible study. You should not be entering into your Bible going, okay, uh, tell me how to not lie, okay? All right, if you're a liar, you're a liar. It's your heart. You're wicked, okay? Like, it's just, that's in you, right? Like, you can't just, and, and you could aggressively get yourself not to lie for a couple weeks, so it takes you back to Genesis 3 where you think you're the Savior, you're the God, self-idolatry, so you're still condemned, you're still guilty, even in your self-righteous works. But, but the whole Bible will say this is who God is. Now, the whole, all the scriptures will say this. I want to end with just showing you out of one letter just a, a quick note as to why this is so encouraging and how it connects to Habakkuk, then we're done. Colossians 1, Paul prays for that church. Here's what he prays for this church. He says, I'm begging from the day we heard and have not ceased praying for you. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. First, he says, I'm praying you'd be filled. Here's why this is so important to get. It means you're not full. It means you don't have all the knowledge of him. You don't understand all of his ways yet. You don't understand all of his character and nature. You're not full, so you need more. Now, here's why this is so important is, as I've seen kind of pervasively, it's been my experience in, in many parts where Christianity is centered on an experience where I threw a stick in the fire, I made a decision, I made a speech, I did a chant, that's fine. God can use that, God can redeem that, God can save you in that moment. But then they find themselves years later going, uh, I don't even really know why I'm a Christian. Well, I don't know. I guess I like said I loved him when I was five. But I don't really know why I'm a Christian. And here's why this is so important to see is there's this understanding that, yes, in the cross of Christ, he justifies you 100%. It's called the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He declares you righteous. You realize that I'm a sinner, that I've rebelled, that I cannot obtain righteousness through my own works, through my own merits. Christ goes to the cross for me as my substitute. He hangs, he bleeds, he dies. He takes wrath I deserve. He takes the sin that was mine, and he gifts me his righteousness. Therefore, God sees me as a spot blameless, above reproach life of Jesus Christ and not my sinful, rebellious, hostile, alienated self. Okay, that, that is true. He does that. I'm not saying he doesn't do that, but I'm saying there's clearly moving on from that, this ever-growing filling, this ever-growing, growing in knowledge. That's what Paul is saying. Would you keep expanding their minds of who you are? Would you keep helping them understand you more fully because they still don't understand you? even though they're saved, even though they're Christians. And he says again in verse 10, he keeps saying this. Look at this. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of 
God. Now, here's why this is so important. I bet a bulk of us are interested in how do I live a life that will bear good fruit and bear good works, right? All of us. If you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, I want to I know how to like, live a life that bears good works. But Paul's circular. It's not, I'm going to try to bear good works, and that will grow my knowledge of God. It's you grow in the knowledge of God, and that will lead to a life that bears good works and good fruit. We are so reversed in Christian circles. There's still this sin management. There's still all this behavior modification. There's still all this trying to be better and trying to be moral and try. I'm going, no, you gotta, you got to lean into God. you got to lean into Jesus. And the more you do that, grow in your understanding of him, then that's going to break those cycles and free you from that sin and allow you to walk in newness of life and bear good fruit. This is massive. Can you tell I'm not excited about it? I mean, every situation, counseling I sit down with, this is the pervasive thing that comes back over and over and over and over and over. I'll give you an example. I'll say it another way. Um, if you go to any sort of counseling session, small group, sit under a sermon, and your perspective is, God, would you fix this? I came here so you would fix this relationship, fix my marriage, fix this issue, fix my work, fix my whatever it is, right? Um, and it's not, God, I want to get swept up in what you're like. God, I want to get swept up into your character and nature and your perfected work in Jesus Christ and his cross. Um, track record has shown that you bail very quickly and don't stick with it. Because you're relying on this behavior modification in your life and adjustments to circumstance and not who God is, not what God is like. I've found what continues to stick and what continues to bear fruit are those who say, hey, God, man, I just need to know more of you. I need you to reveal yourself. I need you to help me understand your character and nature and understand your ways, and that, in effect, will begin to help me understand how to walk rightly in these scenarios and in these situations. Because one is gospel and one's just religious activity. And the former is religious activity. And the latter is gospel. And this is why he ends with this in verse 11. And this is the connection to Habakkuk. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. So if God's primary desire for us, friends, is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, then why in the world is the Bible filled with you're going to need endurance and you're going to need patience? Wait, does not everyone bleed? Does not everyone suffer to some degree? I mean, who doesn't get sick? Who doesn't have bad seasons? I mean, are you with me in this? I mean, who, who doesn't need endurance and patience? Fueled from a knowledge of God. Fueled from understanding his character and nature. This is why sometimes people get angry when they read a book like Habakkuk and they read that God is sovereign in all things because they've been wrongly taught that the God of the Scriptures, that his primary desire is to make much of them. And it's to make much of himself. And make much of himself in you so that you might be a bright beacon of light to those around you. You've got to understand the purpose of everything. The goal of everything we do is ultimately for him and from him. So we don't come in saying, hey, God, free me from this addiction. Why? Because I want to be free from this addiction, period. God, would you just, you know, fix this relationship? Why? I want you to fix this relationship, Period. God, free me from my lusts and my greed. Why? I just I want to be freed from my lusts and my greed, period. 
Uh, God, free me from this pain and suffering. Why? Just because I want to be freed from this pain and suffering, period. Instead of, God, free me from these lusts, free me from these addictions, because I want people to see your authority and your power and your redemption and how good you are and how freeing you are, right? Don't free me from this pain and suffering just to free me from pain and suffering. Help me through the pain or sustain me in the pain so they can see that you're better than pain and suffering. I mean, you got to reframe how you understand everything. God, don't just fix this relationship or help me to forgive or get rid of bitterness just to be forgiving or get rid of bitterness. Help me to do it so they see you are really forgiving. Ultimately, your mercy is staggering and you have no bitterness because of your son towards those that you save. Help them to see that. That's what we want. And how do we most clearly see God and know the character and nature of God and the face of Jesus Christ? Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like, how he feels, how he acts, how he responds? Get to know Jesus. So I always want to say, get in the Gospels. See what the life of Christ is like, how he responds, what his heart is like, because you'll get a direct line to God the Father as you see him. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask you right now, there are so many different places and ways that we need to understand you more. Father, would you minister to some right now, whether it's they need, to, they need to know more deeply your everlasting attribute, your sovereignty, your control, your intimateness, whether it's your holiness, whether it's you being a judge. God, wherever it is that would be most helpful to them, would you illuminate that and bring that to clarity? And God, would that be the lightning rod that grounds out the storm around them? and protects them. Father, help us to understand your ways. Help us to know your ways. But God, forgive us when we look not for more of your presence, but more answers to solutions. Help us to trust you. And God, as we observe your supper, encourage us that we might remember and know that you broke your body and shed your blood so that we might see the mind-bending mercy, forgiveness, and authority of the Father in forgiving our sin and reconciling us to you. Help us, Holy Spirit, move. In Jesus' name, amen.